Good morning, First Church. Um, a lot of you I know, some of you I don't, especially college students and stuff. If you don't know me, my name's Phil. My wife, Angela, was on the piano this morning and singing. Um, and First Church supported us for about 15 years. We were missionaries first in Israel and then in Bulgaria. And since we moved back uh, this summer for good, I really haven't had a chance to just say thank you to First Church. So from our family, thank you for all those faithful years of support, financially, prayer, and all those things. We really appreciate that. And um, it means a lot. And, and those ministries are still continuing, and First Church still has a part in the kingdom in those places and beyond. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. And if you're new or you're visiting, um, Pastor Bob, Bob's been going through the book of Hebrews. And then last week, he took a little break to connect something in the book of James. So we're going to take a break from the break this morning and do something else because next week he'll be back in Hebrews unless he hits another rabbit trail, which will be fine too. So I'm going to start with a question. So if there was somebody that you knew really well that was going to go to Israel on a trip, and you're like, you know, I'm probably never going to go, and you could pick one place for them to go and maybe send a message to you, maybe if it was a pastor or somebody, record a message, where would that one place, one place is all you get to choose, or or one important place, where would that be? I want you to think about that. Uh, One of the ministries that I'm involved with and one of the things that y'all have helped with is a Muslim outreach project. I have a colleague named Hussein, some of you know him. He's a Muslim background believer, speaks 13 or 14 languages fluently. He can preach in 13 or 14 languages, I should say. And he has a ministry, he kind of does the full bullpen. He does Facebook uh, Live, he does YouTube, he does satellite television that goes into all the Muslim countries and there's phone numbers and people can call and he can talk to them or other people can talk to them and respond. So in 2019, we took a team, four-man team, to Israel. And um, it was me and Hussein, my colleague Chris, who lives in Romania, and my dad Bill, he's actually here this morning. We, We went. And We filmed mostly in Dari or Persian, which was for Afghanistan and Iran mostly. We came back and and there was such an incredible response to those messages, we decided, okay, we need to do this again, the Lord's working. So 2020, we planned a trip to go back and do it mostly in Urdu, which would be Pakistan, India. Planned the trip, bought the tickets, of course, you know 2020, COVID hit, couldn't travel, couldn't travel, couldn't travel, so last year, We started to plan a trip and we were in the stages of planning and Russia invaded Ukraine and we couldn't leave Bulgaria. We were involved in refugee ministry. My colleague Chris is involved in refugee ministry and we put it on hold. Well, this year we went in March and filmed again. Back to my question. What place in Israel, one place would you choose? Did anybody choose Sodom and Gomorrah? Was that anybody's second, third? Did anybody even think of Sodom and Gomorrah or Lot's wife? I didn't think so. About a month before the trip, I'm planning the itinerary of the trip and Hussein contacts me and he's like, hey, is there anything in Israel connected with Lot's wife, Sodom and Gomorrah? I'm like, well, yeah, there's there's a few things. There's a road sign on the side of the road kind of pointing towards it. Um, We ended up there, so here it is. one for Lot's wife, one for Mount Sodom. 
And I said, why are you asking? He said, there's been multiple Pakistani believers from all over Pakistan that have asked me to go film at Lot's wife. And naturally, my question was, why? And he said, you know, I really am not 100% sure, but we need to go. So we went, this is some pictures there. We went and filmed the messages there. So that's where the journey for this message, this sermon started, was me trying to figure out why would these Pakistani believers ask us to go film there. If you have your Bibles or your phone, if you want to, you can turn to Genesis chapter 19. That's where we're going to start. You can listen along. Let me set the context. Abraham's nephew, Lot, they've split up, and Lot has gone down to the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy those cities because of how immoral and how wicked they are. And God sends two angels into the city to get Lot and his family out of Sodom before it's destroyed. And we're not going to go into the detail, but there are some examples in the early part of that chapter of just how bad things had gotten in Sodom. Okay, we're going to pick up in verse 15. So starting in Genesis 19, verse 15. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to and it's small, let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything till you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah for the Lord, from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought light, Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So we see here in this story, the one who looked back. They're leaving this destruction that's coming, the angels pulling them out and wife's, uh, Lot's wife looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt. Now, if you're like me over the years hearing this story, I've kind of thought before, this sounds a little bit harsh, God. I mean, all she did was, this was her home. All she did was look back and bam, she's dead. She's a pillar of salt. And it, it seems a little rough. So this is one of those times it's very important to look at the Hebrew text of this message, of this passage, and we can get an idea of a little bit more what's going on. In that passage I just read, the word look appears four times, the English word look. But in Hebrew, it's three different words. In verse 20, it's the word hine na, which some of your Bibles actually will translate behold, depending on what translation you have. And that's really what it means. We don't say today, 
behold, it's raining outside. That's not the way we talk. We say, look, it's raining outside. And that's what that word means. It's just take notice. In verse 28, it says, Abraham looked down. That's the word yashkef. And it's the same word used other places in the Bible to look out of a window. It's, it literally, in, in Hebrew, literally means to lean out. The idea is leaning out of a window to take a look. Um, an example would be, if you remember the story when David is coming back to Jerusalem and he's dancing, and his wife Michal looks out of the window and sees him dancing. That's that same word. It's just to kind of see what's going on outside. Then we have this third word. This third word, look, in verse 17 and in verse 24. That is the word tavet. That word is the key, really, to understanding this story. That word means to look intently, to regard with favor, to have respect for. To look intently, to regard with favor, to have respect for. The most famous use of that Hebrew word is the story of the bronze serpent. Remember, the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt. They start complaining about the food and the conditions, and God sends these snakes to judge them. And he tells, Abraham, uh, he tells Moses, put up a bronze serpent, and the people look at it, and they'll be saved. It's not just glancing at it and seeing it. It's this word in Hebrew. The idea was they looked at it intently and had respect for it and regard for it. So what's the issue? The issue there and the issue now is it's really a matter of the heart. It's always a matter of the heart with God. More specifically, it's a matter of faith. It's not just seeing with your eyes the bronze serpent. It wasn't just looking with your eyes back at Sodom. This was a, this was a matter of faith and a matter of the heart. Lot's wife lacked faith in God. She looked back at Sodom because she wanted that. That is what she regarded, more than the safety that God had promised, more than being saved from that destruction. In other words, she was rejecting God's salvation because she liked Sodom better. Now, before we're too harsh on Lot's wife, I think Lot does bear some of the responsibility here he moved his family, if you study other chapters. First, they moved near Sodom, then they moved into Sodom, and by this time, he's a town leader in Sodom. Verse 16 says he hesitated when it was time to go so much that basically the angels had to drag him out of the city to safety. There's reluctance there. Um, so husbands and fathers, I think this story is a warning to us. We have to lead our families well. If you see his actions in chapter 19 before and after our passage, it shows you his family became a lot more like Sodom than like the way of following the Lord. He put his family in a sinful, difficult situation. Now, we live in a fallen world. Sometimes we can't help it. We can't escape from all the sin and all the things that are around us. But we can do the things we need to do to protect our families and our children from evil. The example, I think, a good example is the internet. We really have to have the internet. The ki our kids can't do school without the internet. We can't do our jobs without the internet. But we can have a internet filter to keep the junk and all the bad stuff out. So back to our story, there's something really interesting in the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter says that Lot was a righteous man. And, and that's something we have to struggle with a little bit. It's like, Really, he was righteous? Well, what does that mean? 
When the New Testament or the Old Testament says someone was righteous, what does that mean? It meant that he had put his faith in God. The reality is the difference between Lot and Lot's wife is faith. Now, did Lot make a lot of mistakes? Yes. Did he compromise? Yes. Did Lot, did his life finish well? No. But his faith was in God and hers was not. Now, whenever we study the Old Testament, or whatever you're reading the Old Testament, we should be looking for the gospel, and we should be looking for Jesus, okay? That is the one story of the Bible, and we should always have that in mind. And there's many types or symbols of Christ in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul called Jesus the second Adam, and we say today that Jesus is the new and better Adam. Moses was a prophet and a leader. And God told Moses there's gonna be another better prophet coming, and that prophet's Jesus. Jesus is the better and best prophet, the better leader. David was the king of Israel, but Jesus is the better and eternal king. But sometimes when we're studying the Old Testament, we're not seeing types of Christ, we're seeing contrasts of Christ. And that's what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna see the contrast. Lot's wife was the one that looked back, but we're gonna see the one that looked forward. Let's look at that. And I put this verse up. If you wanna go to Isaiah chapter 50, Isaiah 50, starting in verse five, says, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I have offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who poured out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. This is an important messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah. It's foretelling the suffering of the Messiah, the suffering of Jesus. It says he's gonna have his beard plucked out, which he did. He's gonna be hit on the back, which he was. He's gonna be spit on and mocked, which he was. But there's another part of this prophecy that I think is just as important and maybe more important. Verse seven says, I have set my face like flint. That is a Hebrew idiom. It's other places in the Old Testament. Flint is a very hard stone. It's found throughout Israel. You can walk around in the desert and find pieces of flint and rock still. We did that some in some of my grad classes. They used it for weapons. They used it for knives and those kind of things. And the idea of setting your face like flint is total dedicated resolve and unwavering determination. So it's saying he had, the Messiah has total dedicated resolve, unwavering determination. Verse five says, I have not turned away, or you could say, I have not looked back. So this verse is not only describing the suffering of the Messiah, it's saying when that suffering comes, the Messiah will not look back. He will go forward with unwavering resolve. The Messiah is the one. Jesus is the one who looked forward. Now, we can read these Old Testament prophecies and we see them fulfilled in the New Testament. And if we know our understanding of Scripture, God inspired Isaiah to write these verses, correct? Combine that with our understanding of the Trinity. We understand the Trinity that God was, that Jesus is 100% God, he always has been and always will be 100% God. Bob talked about that a couple weeks ago. 
So if we think about it, in many ways, you can think about it that Jesus is the author of the Bible. Jesus wrote these verses. He's the author of these verses in Isaiah. So when we read that and connect it to the New Testament, you have to think that Jesus wrote that before it would happen, knowing what would happen to him. So none of this came as a surprise to Jesus. It wasn't like he didn't know it was coming. He wrote those verses. Look with me now at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is in the middle of a bunch of other stories in Luke 9, and sometimes we kind of blow past this verse or overlook it. This is a very important fulfillment of prophecy. Some of your Bibles will have it translated, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Some of them say he was determined to go to Jerusalem or something like that. Now, I'm not here to criticize Bible translations. In fact, my very favorite translation that I use the most translates it the other way. But it's important to know that in Greek, it does say he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew idiom, set your face like flint. The word set in Greek is the word just establish or strengthen, okay? So this verse is fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah. So in your Bible, put a note, if you haven't, don't have a reference Bible, Luke 9:51. put in a little note to see Isaiah 57, because that verse is fulfilling that prophecy. Jesus's entire life on earth was lived with purpose, with one primary goal, and that was the cross. His goal, his primary goal was rescuing us from our sin. Nobody has ever lived that's ever been as an intentional as Jesus. He didn't turn back from his purpose. In fact, he set his face head on to go towards these trials. Satan tempted Jesus to take the easy way out. What did Jesus do? He quoted scripture, he didn't sin. Jesus's friend Peter tried to stand in his way of going to the cross and Jesus rebuked him and pushed him aside. The crowds in Nazareth tried to kill Jesus too early and Jesus walked through the middle of them and escaped. In Galilee, they tried to seize Jesus and make him king and what did he do? He left and went to the wilderness by himself. Jesus was the one that looked forward. You know, we look at Lot's wife. Lot's wife loved the world. She loved the good life of Sodom. And she loved it so much that she lost her life. She lost everything she had trying to hold on to her home. She looked back. Jesus already had everything in heaven. But he loved the world too. But he loved the people of the world. He loved the world so much that he gave up his home he gave up everything, even his life, so that we could gain life. Jesus was the one who looked forward. So where does that leave us? Lot's wife looked back. Jesus looks forward. Go with me a little bit further down into Luke chapter 9, and we see these two verses. This is Jesus. This is um, the story being told. It said, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So what I would like to look at is now 
those called to look forward. So we've seen who looked back and we've seen Jesus is the one that looked forward. Now we see that people are called to look forward. You know, there's a bunch of passages in the gospel that Jesus talks about what it's gonna be like to be his disciple. In this passage, there's three examples. Jesus asks someone to follow him. Somebody asks Jesus to follow him. And then we have this one, another one that comes up to him. And here we have this man, he says, I want to follow you, Jesus. But he wants to go and say goodbye first. Now, I think it's important to to look here. Jesus does not say, no, you cannot. Jesus does not forbid him from saying goodbye to his family. What Jesus does is give him a warning. He says, he's telling him, you need to be careful. You need to make sure you keep your eyes and your focus on what's most important. This is a reference back to the story of Elijah and Elisha. For the sake of time, we're not gonna read it this morning. You can read it at home. It's 1 Kings 19. Okay, you have the prophet Elijah and God says you need to pick a disciple. You need to pick somebody that's gonna take your place. And the man is Elisha. And Elisha's in, is minding his own business, as it were, plowing a field. And Elijah comes by and calls him to be his apprentice. And Elisha says, well, can I go say goodbye first? And Elijah permits him. And Elisha says goodbye to his family, but then he kills the oxen that he's plowing with, and he makes a sacrifice, and he burns his plow, he kills his oxen, and makes this sacrifice. And he's basically saying, I'm finished with the old life. I'm finished with farming. I'm committed to following Jesus. It's a beautiful story and a beautiful image of someone changing his life to follow Jesus. And I think Jesus is playing off that story here. He's like, you remember that story of him saying goodbye? Okay, if you're gonna say goodbye, you need to say goodbye with the same urgency and the same commitment that Elisha says. Elisha's commitment, that's the commitment you need to follow Jesus. My dad's here this morning. When he was a teenager, he used to tell me he would go down to Carolina in the summer and work on, our family had farms down there and he'd work on it. And they had the old tractor and he's told me before about his grandfather, my great grandfather, he would be out plowing the field and, and my great grandfather would, would take like a, uh, like a broom handle, a straight stick. And dad said he would be plowing with the tractor and he would stand there with a stick like this, measuring his rows, okay? Making sure that every row was straight. I imagine that if they weren't, he probably hit him with the stick, but that's another story. Um, But why? Why did he stand there with that stick measuring those rows? Okay. Well, if if you think about farming, if you get this row a little bit crooked, then when you start plowing, you get to the next row and it gets a little bit crooked. And then the next row and the next row. And by the time you're in at the field, your rows are off. And what's the result? The result is less crops. Fast forward, a couple years ago, we were talking to one of the guys that farms that we hunt with, and he was telling us about the new tractors they have. They have 4G GPS computers built into the tractor. So they go to a field and they program in their, their, their code and they plow the field and the computer remembers where the, 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 you've planted. And when you go back to harvest, you can go back in your thing, hit the program and the, and the tractor will follow those lines. 
And what he told us with things like peanuts and cotton, he said they're able to plant so straight and so much closer together that some of their fields, they're getting 10 to 20% more yield from each field just because their rows are straight and they can be closer together because they're so straight, okay? So what Jesus is talking about here is a productive life and a productive life in so much as productive in God's eyes. If we're plowing and we're looking back over our shoulder, we're gonna get off course and we're not gonna be as productive as we could be or should be. Now remember, we don't bring the results. God does not call us to bring results. God calls us to be faithful, to plant the fruit of the gospel and to follow him and God will bring the results. But Jesus is telling this man, you've gotta keep looking forward. There's a lot of distractions out there. His family could have been a distraction, okay? There's a lot of more distractions for us probably now. And most of them are not necessarily bad things. But if we put the good things before God, then it gets us off course and we slowly get off track and we slowly become less productive. Jesus makes it pretty plain that it's not easy to follow him. He, he talks about in one place counting the cost of following him. He talks about other places, the difficulties. And some of the people that were following him quit. And they say, well, if that's what it's gonna be like, I'm walking away and people leave. And, you know, I've probably in my life been guilty sometimes of talking too much about sacrifices, too much about how difficult things can be, too much about what the cost I have to pay to serve Jesus. And sometimes I talk about that more than the joys and the rewards. And I think sometimes we get the impression that following Jesus is more difficult than any other life, or that following Jesus costs more than kind of living the way we wanna live. But I've come to, to think about this and realize that I really don't think that's what Jesus means. And rather than me try to explain it, I'm gonna let um, the theologian Dallas Willard, this is, what, this is the way he explains this idea. He says, to count the cost is to take in consideration both the losses and the gains of all possible courses of action to see which is the most beneficial. This done, Jesus knew the trials of discipleship would appear to be the only reasonable path. The cost of non-discipleship would then be seen for what it is, unbearable. In other words, the cost of following Jesus is less than any other choice. God made us, God knows us intimately, God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. And God designed us to have perfect communion and fellowship with him. And for just a little while, we had it. Adam and Eve had that. And then we know that they sinned and that perfect communication was broken. But that's the whole reason Jesus came. That's the reason Jesus went forward and Jesus faced the, the cross and the spitting and the hitting and the pulling the beard out because he wanted to restore that relationship. And Jesus knows that the best version of ourselves is ourselves fully committed to him. In that verse we read in, in Luke, verse 62, it says, fit for the kingdom. That word in Greek means well-placed or useful. Jesus knows that if we're fully committed to him, 
then that's where we're gonna feel the most ourselves and the most at home. To look at it the other way, if we're not fully committed to him, if we've got our hand on the plow and looking back over our shoulder, then we're gonna feel out of place. Wavering commitment for a believer is gonna make us feel out of place. So how do we do this? The key is keeping our eyes looking forward on Jesus. This is one of the themes um, of the book of Hebrews. Bob has talked about every week he's been in Hebrews. Last week when we were in James, he talked about, he closed with the end of focusing on Jesus. And it's, the Lord orchestrates things so so cool because the Lord knew that I was already working on this sermon and, that, and that's the theme that we needed to see. Jesus is our perfect example. And really a definition of discipleship that I like to use is living our life on earth the way Jesus lived his life on earth. And we're gonna get to this later, but in Hebrews um, chapter 12, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand, the throne of God. We've already seen Jesus knew the pain was coming, knew the suffering was coming, knew the cross was coming, but Jesus looked forward past it. Why? Because he knew the glory that was coming to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we too are gonna have suffering and problems and, if, and issues. But if we emulate Christ, we can look past the issues, past the struggles to that day when all things will be made new because one day we will be on the new heaven and new earth without those things. And that's what the that writer of Hebrews is telling us. Paul in Philippians tells us to strain towards what is ahead and forget what is behind. Looking forward has always been the way of faith. Looking forward has always been the way that God's people have lived. I, I'm really excited for Bob to get to Hebrews chapter 11. That's my favorite book of the Bible. I've preached it before. A couple weeks ago, we were having lunch and I asked Bob to do me a favor. I said, will you go ahead and just skip the middle of Hebrews, go do Hebrews 11 and it'll be okay. Preach Hebrews 11 for me and then you can go back and finish Hebrews. He wouldn't do it for me, but um, we'll get to it. We might get to it this year. You think Jose this year, maybe? When we, when we get to it, I'm looking forward to it and we'll see this. But if we go back to that story of Lot and his wife, we do have Abraham as our example of faith. In fact, the Bible says Abraham is the father of our faith. The New Testament says that the gospel was preached to Abraham back then. Hebrews 11, if you go back and read it this week, says Abraham was looking forward to his home and not looking back. What home was he looking forward to? His heavenly home. God called him away from his earthly home to a new place to the promised land, but Abraham was a, a man of faith looking forward to what was coming in heaven. Now, if you remember, I said back at the beginning, I didn't really understand why those Pakistani Christians wanted us to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, if you look at this picture, right behind my head, you can see kind of one column. That's, in quote marks, Lot's wife. Don't get too excited. There's another one across the Dead Sea in Jordan that's also Lot's wife. Um, I, I don't think that's the actual, I'm confident that's not the actual pillar. But it is a reminder and we did go there. And after studying this passage and reading it and thinking about it, I think I do understand 
what these Pakistani Christians needed. You know, we live in a sinful world. We live in a fallen world. It costs a lot to follow Christ. It costs a believer in Pakistan a lot more to follow Christ than it follows us. I don't know how much you read world news. A couple weeks ago, several churches in Pakistan were burned and they went to the people's houses that attended those churches and destroyed and burned their houses down as well. I think those Pakistani believers wanted to be reminded that no matter what, keep your eyes on Jesus. My colleague Hussein, that's the message he preached there. He preached the message of don't be like Lot's wife, don't look back, keep your eyes on Jesus. Now we're gonna close this morning a little bit different. Adam and Angela, you can, you can come up. Um, we're gonna close with a song. If you're my age or so or older, you probably grew up singing this song in church. There's been a few people that have recorded it lately. Um, doesn't get pushed a lot, doesn't get played a lot. Um, the song is I've Decided to Follow Jesus. And as I studied this sermon, this song was just every, in my mind constantly, finally to the point that I asked um, Angela and Adam to, to close with it. It just kept coming in. And what's really neat about this song, if you, if you know anything about it, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus was written by a pastor and missionary from India. He was from India, and he planted churches and pastored churches in India. And he wrote this little song. He set it to a traditional um, Indian tune, which is really cool because we're talking about Pakistani believers right there in that same area, um, very close. So as we sing this song and close, I want you to pay attention to the lyrics. And there's a few possibilities to think about. My first thing I want to ask is, have you ever looked to Jesus? And when I say look, I mean that Hebrew word tevet. Have you ever looked to Jesus intently? Have you ever regarded Jesus with favor? Have you ever respected Jesus? I don't know a lot of you, but if, if, if not, maybe today you could sing this song for the first time as a song of faith. And if you're not sure about Jesus and if you've accepted him as your only hope of salvation, talk to one of us. I'll be in the back. Talk to me. Talk to Jose. Talk to Adam, Angela. But don't just leave. Maybe you can sing this song for the first time and truly mean it. And also know in a group this size, um, there's believers here. You've accepted God's free gift of salvation. You've accepted the gospel. But maybe you're looking back at the world. You've lost your focus on Jesus. Maybe there's a relationship. Maybe there's a job. Maybe, maybe you're suffering and you've started to question the goodness of God. And you got your hand on the plow, but you're looking back over your shoulder and you're, you're starting to get off a little bit. I urge you today, sing this as a song of confession. Don't perjure yourself this morning, but sing this song as a song of confession. Ask the Holy Spirit, say, please point me back to Jesus. That last song, or was it last song about wanting to know Jesus more? I forgot, I get him out of order. But ask the Holy Spirit to help you know him more. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you remember the greatness of the gospel this morning. And I also know a lot of you in here, you have your hand on the plow and you're looking at Jesus, and you're not looking back. Sing this as a song of thanksgiving. Sing it as a song to remind yourself of what Jesus has done in your life. Mm -hmm.
This week as we go forward, Lord, we would truly remember what we talked about today, God, that you would be our focus, Lord. We would move forward with you, God, and we would not look back, God. We thank you so much for who you are, for your love for us, God, and we thank you we could just be here together. In your name we pray, amen.